Well, last week we began a mini-series answering the question, what is the church? Uh, we're doing this partly because uh, we're coming out of a pandemic, but, but even more so we're coming out of a busy summer. And so it's good for us to be reminded about what is this thing called church? Why, why do we do this? Who are we? And so last week I spent uh, just a few moments at the beginning talking about why we would do this kind of a series. So I just want to briefly review uh, why we are doing this series. So first of all, to provide a biblical... Are we fighting each other here? No? Uh, to provide a biblical basis and clarity regarding Jesus' church. Okay? So, it's imperative that we are looking at the head of the church, the leader, who is Jesus, and to let him then shape our ideas about what church is, about who we are as the church. So we might think that church is a building. We talked last week. It's not that. It might, we might think it's a place where we go to get our tank filled up each Sunday and then have our tank depleted throughout the week. No, it's not that. We must let the Bible shape our thinking about church. Okay, Not what culture says about the church, not what we want to make church, not what the megachurch complex says the church is. We need to let the Bible, Jesus, shape who we are as a church. And so we want to provide a biblical basis and clarity regarding Jesus' church. Secondly, also then, to fight individualism and self-sufficiency. Church involvement is not predicated on consumerism or convenience or entertainment or your preferences. That's not what church involvement is about. It's about cultivating faith in Jesus and then letting that seep into us so that we embody core tenets of the Christian faith, like sacrificial love. So when we come together, we embody sacrificial love towards one another. The teachers back there right now are embodying sacrificial love to all the parents here. Right? The tech team is doing that. The worship team is doing that. So when we gather together, we embody these realities about who Jesus is. And in that, then, we are fighting individualism. We are fighting self-sufficiency as we make much of Jesus. And then lastly, we're doing this to prioritize our lives in a way consistent with what Jesus intended. So we're prioritizing our lives around Jesus. Okay? And what he states is of utmost importance. Then we're, we're calling out the many distractions that are not for our good, and we're calling us to something better. And that better thing, better person is Jesus. Okay? So by reminding ourselves of what the church is, we're trying to help us prioritize our lives around Jesus. And last week we talked about identity. And how Jesus' church takes on the identity of Christ. We discussed how we can oftentimes seek to cultivate an identity through possessions we own, through possessions we consume, through possessions we wear, or the relationships that we have. 
But building our identity on anything except Jesus is setting ourselves up for failure. Because, as we talked about last week, identity leads to worship. However we identify ourselves or what we identify with is going to lead to worship. So, when we identify with something other than Jesus, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment. We're guaranteeing our disappointment because nothing can handle the weight of expectations that comes with worship. Nothing else can. Everything else is going to fail us. Only Jesus can withstand those expectations. And so, by identifying with Jesus, finding our identity in him, we will have right-placed worship. And he will not disappoint us. He can withstand all the expectations that we place upon him. So last week we answered the question of what is the church with an emphasis on finding our identity in Jesus. And today we're going to answer that question with this phrase, Jesus church is the light of the world as Jesus is. John, this, this doesn't seem to be working, so you might have to just try and bear with me here, okay? So first of all, I want to show where this is found biblically, and then we'll try to explain what this means for us as a church, this idea that we are the light of the world as Jesus is. So first of all, I want to go to John 8.12. And so this says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven statements that begin with, I am. Okay? And so these are intended to be I, uh, kind of earth-shattering statements. Okay? Like these are formative, foundational statements that Jesus makes about himself. And this is one of them. And there's so much packed into this statement. So first of all here... Just notice that Jesus is identifying with light, right? That's what he's saying. I am the light. He's identifying himself with light. Now, biblically, this has much significance, as there is a strong contrast drawn between light and darkness. And we see this happening over and over throughout the Bible. So at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, we encounter this distinction, okay? Genesis 1-2 speaks about how darkness is covering the heavens and the earth, okay? Darkness is everywhere. But then when we go on to verses 3 and 4, and it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Okay. Now it's notable... In Genesis 1, as God creates and declares things good, that the statement of goodness that is made about light and many other things, that that is never attached to darkness. Okay? Over and over in Genesis 1, God creates, and then he says, and that is good. It is good. Right? But there's a noticeable absence of that statement when it's talking about darkness. So this is one of those, like... The only thing in Genesis 1 where we don't get that statement, it is good. And so we can infer certain things then about darkness. 
And this begins a dynamic here at the very beginning of the Bible that carries on throughout the Bible that pits light and dark as symbols of kind of depicting this cosmic struggle between good and evil. Okay, and so that's part of what we see with light and darkness is the cosmic struggle of good and evil. And this then is seen in many ways throughout the Bible leading up to Jesus' statement in John 8. So there are many events in the Old Testament that foreshadow Jesus' salvation, but one of the most important, one of the most foundational events we find in the Bible is when God saves his people from slavery in Egypt. So his people are in physical slavery in Egypt, okay? They're oppressed. Life is brutal for them. And so Israel cries out to God. And God comes and he rescues them. Now, specific to our topic this morning, Exodus 13 is speaking about this idea. And it says in Exodus 13, it talks about a pillar of fire. Okay, so God comes to his people as a pillar of fire to lead them out of Egypt, a land that's filled with darkness. But when he leads them out, he also leads them out in the dark of night. Right? So he comes as a pillar of fire, a light, to lead them out of Egypt. And so this picture that we get is that God is leading his people out of darkness to salvation. That's the picture we're getting as he leads, saves his people from slavery in Egypt. Also then, in Psalm 27, we read there, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So, again, we see this connection here between light and salvation, right? Light, God's light, leads to salvation. And then, not surprisingly, when we find Jesus at his death, okay, so we're fast-forwarding now to him being on the on the cross. This is the ultimate act of salvation, right? And what happens with Jesus as he hangs in the cross? Middle of the day, light is everywhere, right? What happens to Jesus? Darkness covers him, okay? It becomes completely dark in the middle of the day. So basically, darkness is enshrouding him. And this picture that we get of Jesus on the cross then is that he's taking on darkness. He's taking on sin, and evil, ours. He's taking that upon himself. And so we see this dynamic of a world we inhabit being filled with darkness, which is a metaphor for sin and evil. And then, given the fact that we're living in this world that is full of darkness, we need light. We need light. And Jesus is that light. But even when Jesus came into the world, darkness still existed. It led to his death, ultimately. ultimately. But practically, though, we read in John 3 this. The light, being Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. So Jesus comes as light. And we see him demonstrate light-filled things throughout his life, right? Like he feeds people who are hungry, basically creates food for them, 
right? So that their stomachs can be filled. Jesus heals sick people. He also brings someone who's dead back to life. He loves unlovable people or people who are not loved by others. He was a friend to the outcasts, to the lonely. He forgives sinners. And so he does all of these things that exemplify light, right? But people still looked at him, and they were drawn to darkness. They were drawn to other things that were not Jesus. And so what we see going on here is that the darkness masqueraded as light. Similar to what Satan pulled off in the Garden of Eden. Similar to what we experience in our everyday lives here and now as well. Right? Satan comes to Eve in the garden and says, Did God really say? And we experience this in our own lives. And Satan comes to us and says, It's not that bad. It's fine this one time. Sin is okay. So Satan comes and he twists God's words. And, and this is all smoke and mirrors. This is Satan's deceit. That's what Satan's all about, is deceit. So much so that Jesus himself, the light of the world, is seen to be darkness by many people to the point that he is killed. And so we look at Jesus on the cross knowing that he is kind of a picture of darkness, but we know that he's willingly doing that. He's doing that. He's taking on darkness and sin. He's being killed because he's choosing to do that. He's doing that out of love. So we get this picture then of Jesus. Jesus brings forgiveness, which is a picture of light, as he is condemned, which is a picture of darkness. He brings righteousness, which is a picture of light, as he becomes sin itself which is dark. He brings salvation, which is light, while he experiences the epitome of darkness, which is slavery and death. Okay, so all of that is just to offer some background to Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world, okay? But I want to pull out a couple other things here uh, from Jesus' statement. So he says, first of all, that he is the light. So notice here what he's not saying. He's not saying he is a light. He is saying he is the light. So he's not one of many. He's a one of one. My boys like to collect sports cards, but this could be true for Pokemon or Magic the Gathering or whatever cards are collected. They would love, they look for one of ones because they're rare and they're valuable. And I think we only have one in our house. But a one of one is what card collectors would look for. And this is what Jesus is. He's a one of one. What this means then is that there are not other lights. There is only one. So there is only one place we can look and find salvation. So there's this old parable that talks about some blind men gathering around an elephant, and, and they're all feeling different parts of the elephant. Okay, and, and then they begin to share their observations. Well, this is what I'm feeling, and, and they're all describing different things, right? 
And, and so they're coming together, sharing their obs- observations, trying to determine what it is that they're touching and, and trying to figure this whole thing out. And so it's the accumulation of all of their insights that allows them to fully discover the elephant. Now this proverb or this parable teaches, and the, the place that many people have gone with this is that it helps to teach that all religions are needed so that we can truly know God. Okay, so we take something from all these different religions and we meld them together and then we will find what true light really is. Now, I want to be really careful here. I am not saying that we should not learn from other people. More explicitly, I am not saying Christians should not learn from non-Christians. We can learn many things from non-Christians, okay? So we don't stand over non-Christians and look down on them and just dismiss them, okay? But Jesus is really exclusive in his claims about being the light. So, So you can't take Jesus, what he's saying here in John 8 about being the light, and meld that together with other faith traditions. Like he is being completely exclusive, He is saying, I am the light. There is no other light. So he is the one true light. Secondly, then, Jesus says he is the light of the world. So the people of Israel, throughout their history, they expected a Messiah. They heard promises that there would be this Savior who would come. And he would be the light that they had long waited for. This light would come and he would save them. So this was expected for the nation of Israel. And so it would be really hard for them to conceive how this light would also be for others. That it would be available to whomever might believe in him. And so Jesus' statement then has cosmic implications. He is saying that he is the light in every place and for every person throughout all of history. There is no other light that this world will encounter. And so for us here in America, he is the light, which is true also in Africa and Asia and every part of the world, through every part of history. He is the light of the world. He alone possesses truth and salvation that we are all looking for. Okay. So Jesus is the light of the world. But then we read something really provocative in the Gospel of Matthew. And we read there, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, you are the light of the world. Jesus' church is the light of the world. He's saying, those who trust in me are the light of the world. So this has a couple of significant implications that I want to press into. First of all, I want to note how Jesus is identifying so closely with his church. He calls them what he is. This is how closely Christians are to be aligned with Jesus. 
Jesus cares deeply about being unified with his church. He is theirs, or ours, and they, or we, are his. And this declaration becomes all the more meaningful when we consider how we can so often make Jesus look bad. Or how we might choose to run to darkness instead of light in our everyday lives. And yet, Jesus says this. Jesus still identifies with his people in this way. He says, you are the light of the world. He knows he's going to be disowned. He knows his followers are going to deny him. And he's still making this statement about his church. He calls us his own. He even states that we, as flawed individuals, sinful, are able to bring light to dark places in this world. That he is so kind that he will do that in us and through us. So this is good news. On one hand, this should be encouraging for us. Jesus bears with us. He is patient with our failings. He forgives our sin. He works good in and through sinful people. He gives us his name. He's united to us. He's committed to us when we are not committed to him. He shines his light through us. This should be encouraging. But there's another side of this, a side that implies responsibility. If Jesus was actual light to the world, then there's a call for us to similarly be light in this world as well. And so to go back to last week, we can't be reminded enough that Jesus is the one who forms this in us. He forms light in us. It's not something that we need to manufacture on our own. In fact, we can't. When Jesus gives us his spirit, he simultaneously provides us that which produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He, through his spirit, cultivates, creates, makes this happen in us. If we trust Jesus, this is what he will do in us. And when we find ourselves lacking in these so-called fruits, it's because we've begun trusting in something or someone else that is now failing us. That thing is being proven as insufficient, as not good enough, as not a true savior for us. But as Jesus gives us light and forms himself in us, then the only logical response for us is then to share that. To bring that light to dark places. And Matthew 5 is explicit about this. So we just read verse 14 when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But if we go two verses further, it says this. Because you are the light of the world, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. And to reinforce the point I was just making and made last week, notice that it doesn't say, make your light shine. Words mean something, right? It doesn't say, make your light shine. 
it says, let your light shine. So it's already in us. Let it shine. Don't suppress it by seeking your own glory. By pursuing your own selfish interests. By worshiping yourself. Jesus has saved you. He's given you himself. He says he never leaves us. He comes and inhabits us, our existence. And so he says, let this be known to others. Let it be shown through your life. Let Jesus have his way in you. Let the good that he creates in you come out and be shared with others. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, I am your light, right? I come to you. I live in you. Let that shine. Let that be seen by other people. So if we are trusting Jesus, and we will all do this imperfectly, but as we trust Jesus, his light will emanate from us. And this is what is entailed in being a Christian, letting the light of the gospel shine in us and through our lives. Another way that we could say this negatively is to not let the light of Jesus be seen by others is to tell a lie to this world, right? To believe the gospel, to receive this light, but then to live another way is to tell a lie to those who are watching. So we should want to be serious and intentional about letting Jesus' light shine in and through us. We should also understand, like, we're flawed people. We're sinful people. We're not going to do it perfectly. So when we find ourselves not reflecting love, joy, peace, patience, the answer is to not beat ourselves up, but to turn back to Jesus, to repent. That's what the word repentance means, is to turn away from, okay? So we turn away from whatever that thing is we're trusting in, and we're turning towards Jesus. So, but we should want to be serious and intentional about this, okay? It's, it's not just like, ah, when it happens in my life kind of thing. I think what Jesus is saying is he says, let your light shine before others. Is he's saying, essentially, have a plan. Be diligent about this. Orient your life in a certain manner. Okay, I want to try and simplify this just a bit. So we live in a world that's filled with the darkness of sin. It's everywhere. If we are Christians, we are embracing the idea that we possess the light that overcomes the darkness of this world. Okay? We're embracing that idea. So you possess the light if you're believing the gospel. You are the light. You are light in a dark world. So it's not just me as a pastor. It's not just the pastor's family. It's not just the overseers. It's Jesus' church. All of us, together, we are the light. We possess within us what the world needs. Jesus. So your neighbors 
your classmates, your coworkers, your family and friends and teammates and siblings and roommates, you have what they need. And it doesn't matter if you like those people or you dislike those people. You have what they need. You have light for a dark world. And here's the reality. People need Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need to be one to a political standpoint, viewpoint. That's not what people need. They don't need primarily a better diet. Maybe they need a better diet, right? But primarily they don't need a better diet. People need Jesus. And so that's what we're called to as followers of Jesus who possess light is to give others light, to let that light shine through us. And this is why I was pushing last week for us to know Jesus Not a Jesus of our preference, but Jesus as revealed in the Bible. We need his identity because people don't need an improved version of themselves. People don't need to see an improved version of you. They need the true light. They need Jesus. And the reality is we live in a land that's lost hope. People need to see why Jesus provides an undying hope in the midst of all the brokenness around us. People are filled with fear. They need to experience Jesus' love, which, as the Bible says, drives fear away. That's what Jesus' love does. It invades fear. It overcomes it and drives it away. People are despairing. And they need to be given a vision as to how someone can live with joy even through circumstances that are hard and tough and are not what we would choose. When the world is freaking out, we can be people of faith, sturdied by the gospel. And this is what the light of Jesus offers. So I want to be here as we wind things down and be really explicit about how this ties with our core value of mission. Okay? So, we don't want to be a Christian club here at Center Church. Okay? Let's just get people like us, let's gather together, and then we'll have our fun, we'll go to our homes, drive into our garages, not talk to our neighbors, and just be reclusive. We're not trying to be a Christian club at all. We want to be a refuge And we want to be a community, for sure. But we always want to have an eye on those who are not here. We want to have compassion for folks who are standing square in the path of God's wrath. And many of them might not know it at all. So it's sad to think about how so much of life is an attempt to gain significance by what we do. Right? Throughout our days, we're trying to act in certain ways, work at our jobs to create significance, right? To create significance in a variety of ways of who we are and what we do. But then, oftentimes, at least in our culture, when it comes to the conversation of life 
and death, there's this tendency to minimize significance. Have you ever noticed that? Like, let's go and be and do something significant throughout our days. But then when it comes to the end of our lives, we'll minimize the significance. And we'll say, we just live and die and that's it. And it's not a big deal at all. There's hypocrisy in that way of thinking. The most significant endeavor we can involve ourselves in is the work of Jesus' church. You might be really important in your jobs. You might do really well. And that's great. But the most significant endeavor we can engage in on this earth is being part of Jesus' church. This is where lives are changed. This is where hope is birthed. And this is something that will go on forever. This organism of Jesus' church is not going to die. It's not going to fail, unlike everything else in this world. Jesus is the one who provides us what we are looking for. And he is the one who offers and gives lasting satisfaction and lasting contentment. Okay, it's really easy to come to the end of a sermon like this and to send you out with an exhortation like this. All right, go be the light, right? Let's go do it. Be a better Christian. Like, let's just make this happen. And it's really easy for me as a pastor to do that. Make yourself shine brighter this week, right? Um, No doubt we have a role of response in all of this. But that would not be good news. That would not be good news. Because some of you aren't going to have the energy and strength to do that. Some of you are going to face circumstances this week that seem completely dark and you don't know what to do or where to turn. This also emphasizes why we prioritize this Sunday morning gathering and why we prioritize community groups here at Center Church. We need to hear who is the true light over and over and over. Because when we walk out of here, when we engage culture, we're going to hear many messages that are going to say, this thing's a light, that person's the light, this technology, this gadget is the light. Hope in these things. And we need this constant reorientation. Jesus is the light of the world. And so, gospel application, right? It's not about who we are. It's not about what we do. The only thing that matters is Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. So I'm not giving a motivational speech here to try and encourage you to be the light. Okay? That will take care of itself. I want you to believe this. This is a churchy statement, some that if you've been in church a long time, you've heard this many, many times. Jesus is the light of the world. I am working, preaching, pleading, praying that we would believe this. That we would actually believe Jesus and only Jesus is the light of the world. He is the true light. John 1 9 
says this, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone. He is the one who gives light to everyone. So let's let Jesus be the light. Let's trust in him to be the light. And then we can let his light shine through us. So let's be clear. Our job is not to create the light, all right? You aren't responsible for making the light brighter or ensuring the light does not go out. Your job is not to overcome the darkness. But if you are a Christian, you know the one who does all of this, who has already overcome darkness, who is true light. And so the invitation then is for us to see Jesus for who he is and then to believe that. To put our roots down in that truth. Jesus is the light of the world. There is no other. Let's believe that.